Welcome to the Nonprofit Hub Radio Podcast, where we highlight nonprofit innovators, leaders, and influencers every week that are changing the sector for the better. I'm your host, Delaney Molinex, Executive Director of Nonprofit Hub. If you're not for profit and all for purpose, you're in the right place. You see, we know you're already doing good, but we've designed this podcast to help nonprofit professionals find growth, joy, and connection. So tune in weekly for new episodes to elevate your cause, spread the news, and share the resources we share with you. We'd like to thank DonorBox for sponsoring today's episode of the Nonprofit Hub Radio podcast. DonorBox is the online fundraising engine of choice for over 50,000 organizations in 96 countries. Their intuitive fundraising software was designed with your donors in mind. Go to DonorBox.org to sign up today. That's D-O-N-O-R-B-O-X dot O-R-G. Hey all, it's Delaney from Nonprofit Hub. I was joined by Ria Wong. Um, She is a nonprofit consultant, starter of the class, the Fundraising Accelerator, and the host of an amazing nonprofit podcast called The Nonprofit Lowdown. And if you don't know Ria, please look her up. She wears the most adorable hot pink glasses and it's just such a vibe. Um, I love Ria and her fundraising accelerator is amazing. It helps you to deepen your relationships with donors, motivate your board, raise more money from individuals. And Ria has been 100% self-taught, was motivated to obtain thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of professional development to become the fundraiser and the nonprofit leader that she wanted to be. And that was through becoming an accidental fundraiser to now becoming someone who who helps hundreds of nonprofit professionals fundraise better. I love something that she says on her website. So she specializes in major gift solicitation and she likes big asks and she cannot lie. You guys are going to love this Nonprofit Hub Radio podcast episode. So um, please share a little bit more brief background about yourself, and then obviously we'll dive more into all of the all of the deep dive stuff, but would love to just know who you are, what you do, and um, a little bit about your background. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. So for folks who may have read the book or listened to my podcast, I was a 26-year-old executive director in New York City of an organization called Breakthrough New York. And my first day on the job, I did two Google searches. Google search number one was, what does an executive director do? And Google search two was, how do you fundraise? And unfortunately, this is the case for lots of folks in the sector, right? Like you're kind of promoted up into the top job, but you haven't received any formal training. So a lot of times what I see is people being promoted out of programs into the top job. Really, do you see uh, folks coming out of development? So, and even folks in development, what I find is that a lot of people haven't received formal training and actually how to fundraise. And so I've dedicated this next stage of my career to helping the 26-year-old baby ED that I was, which is, why don't I provide some training around really how to fundraise so that you all can make new and different mistakes? Because I've made I've made mistakes. You should learn from my mistakes. Don't make the same mistakes. Make new and different mistakes. So that's what I do. So right now I have a fundraising accelerator that's focused on working with primarily EDs and some development directors around major gift work and strategy. 
Amazing. So I have to agree. I think that formal education, especially in nonprofit management or public administration, however, each university has it laid out in their programming. I mean, in my program, there wasn't any fundraising curriculum. Mm-hmm. The only mm-hmm. fundraising curriculum was grant writing. That was the only part of fundraising that was in the curriculum from what I can remember. And even, I mean, there wasn't marketing, there was nothing about raising money for a nonprofit. And so it's just kind of crazy, but um, luckily there are lots of other resources to help fundraisers learn and grow like nonprofit help, but lots of other things like the services that you provide and all the great, um, the huge network of people who are out there helping nonprofits right now to help us get to know you a little bit better and to maybe break the ice into our conversation. You mentioned that you don't want people to make the same mistakes that you have made. What was the biggest fundraising mistake that you've ever made? Oh my God, where do I even begin? Um, I here, Here's a good one. <laughs> so I received money from a family foundation. It was a um, someone who was on our junior board. His mother had a foundation. They gave us $5,000 and it was like kind of an out of the blue gift, which was great. <laughs> this is so embarrassing to admit. So throughout the course of the year, I was sending updates you know, letters, like, here's what we did with the money, blah, blah, blah. It came around to like renewal. I reached out to the, to the contact and I was like, Hey, you know, would love to have a conversation with your mom about a gift. And he comes back and he's like, yeah, she's not interested in giving again, because she hasn't received any updates about what you did with the money. And I was like, what What are you talking about? Right. So I go back and like looking at all the things, turns out that I was sending letters to another organization with a very similar name that was in a different state altogether. Oh my gosh. I, it was terrible. You know, like you could even look on, I mean, I can't remember the name. It, it was like something very, it was like the Iris Foundation or something. It wasn't that, but it, it was like kind of generic like that. And I realized that like this other organization had been getting all my updates. I mean, while this woman had not heard a peep from me. So like, that's a fun, <laughs> just like one fun example of like, that you're paying attention to the details. Oh my goodness. Well, I think it's kind of surprising that like any foundation that was getting an obscure letter from you wasn't like notifying you in any Yeah. Yeah. That's another question too. Cause like I don't know, maybe they weren't open. Like I don't know what happened, but like it was just <laughs> yeah. it was such a mortifying moment of like I did, I thought I was doing the right thing. It turns out I was updating someone completely different. And it was oh like they weren't gosh. even in like this state. It was like I don't know, like that foundation did things like, you know, uh, like cataract surgery or something completely different. It was, it was just like so deeply mortifying. I was like, I cannot believe this. <laughs> so like, that's one fun. I have like a million. I could talk about a million, but that, that's one that like still makes me like feel a little. Yeah. Well, like <laughs> you're saying you feel, you felt like embarrassed by it, but I would be so frustrated, like so irritated that I spent that time right? Like thinking I was doing the right thing and then like it not mattering, like it not happening. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. Look, I mean, I can be frustrated by it, but at the end of the day, I just, I feel like there's a lesson here. And the lesson is like double check the address. (laughs) Right. And like, and really what I should have done is like, once I sent the first letter, followed up with the send back, Hey, did your mom get the letter? Right. Uh, which I didn't do. Cause I think some of the things like we're moving so fast, we don't actually take that extra step to be like, did I make yeah. sure that the thing that I did actually landed? So yeah, 
that's one fun example. I mean, I don't feel one another. I have like a million things I've screwed up. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I love to just talk about like even more like about like the lessons you learned. So like one of them is to like confirm like maybe receipt of like whatever you had mm-hmm. sent or something like that. But I mean, what else was learned in that situation? Like maybe trying multiple channels of communication? Yes. Uh, the tricky thing was like, we had only gotten a letter with no contact information and no email. So okay. like, it was very clear that there was like a, an arm's distance, but like, yeah, I think oh, okay. we I could have tried other things. I mean, other lessons I've learned so many. Um, I, I think be really careful about communications in the sense that like, so I once sat on this panel and you know, the, the, it was a panel of foundation folks. And essentially it's like the gist of the foundation conversation was like, oh, we're not worried about the kind of kids that Rhea serves because they're going to be fine. Right. Cause I, we served high, like, high achieving low income kids. Mm. And then I wrote kind of a blog piece because I was like really frustrated. And, you know, honestly, if I had been more mature, if I'd been wiser, I would have like maybe not fired off a blog piece on this. <laughs> And then I, and it wasn't disrespectful, but it was, it was spicy. It was definitely spicy. Yeah. And I like a little spice. I'm a little spice spice too. I was like young and dumb though. And um, (laughs) the person who had invited me, who was actually a funder (laughs) called me as soon as I posted. She's like, yeah, I'm just looking at your blog piece. And and basically was like, take it down. Um, Really? Which I did. Yeah. And so that was a mistake. (laughs) other mistakes I've made I've taken money that I probably shouldn't have and mm-hmm. partnered with people who I allowed to be too in the details of the work that we did so I let the money be the center of the relationship I think that's a big problem especially when mm-hmm. we're coming from a scarcity mindset and we just we think all money is good money all money is not mm-hmm. good money yeah um, and sometimes you have donors who don't want to stay in their lane yeah and overstep by thinking because they write a big check, they get oversized influence in the direction of the organization. And, and that was just my own leadership and insecurity around money and um, donor relations. Gosh, like so many things I've done wrong. <laughs> I don't think you're alone in that at all. Like everything you've just talked about, you know, everyone, I mean, not everyone, but I mean, even I can relate to a lot of the things that you've just said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like learning growing pains, right? I've, I've allowed donors to like treat me badly. I mean, I can think of one funder in particular in New York that uh, is, you know, is kind of known to be somewhat, somewhat abusive, um, you know? And I think as a fundraiser, like I just have to take it. Like, I'm just like going to put myself in that, you know, I've had donors say like, inappropriate things to me in like a sexual mm-hmm. harassment kind of way. I mean, look, there are like so many things that have happened in the course of my fundraising career, some of which I had control over others, which I didn't, but yeah, you know, for me, I, I really want to put forth the message to people that like, you don't have to sacrifice yourself mm-hmm. in order to get resources in the door. And I think so often, particularly women, I think feel like and women of color in particular feel like they need to, put themselves in harm's way and sacrifice themselves in order to get resources flowing to the organization. And I'm here to say like, you do not have to do that. 
Yeah. And I mean, this is, this is a a concept that exists across sectors. Like I know even in, in any service oriented position, I mean, I guess like we could consider fundraising a service oriented position. Like you are being the donor um, Mm -hmm. and you're stewarding the organization, but that whole concept, like people will argue, you know, night and day over the customer comes first. Mm -hmm. And I think, in this generation, like where we're at now, that's very much not true. I think employers now understand that your employees like need to come first because otherwise your customers can't be served. Um, right. And I think the right. same has to be true for organizations and their fundraising staff um, and, and all of their staff, their programming staff. I mean, I worked in, um, I worked in residential care for a nonprofit organization and I'm, I'll just say it like the clients got better treatment than I did as a staff member. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And that burnt us out. All of the employees were burnt out because that just wasn't gonna, it just couldn't, it, it couldn't exist. You couldn't survive in that like type of environment. Yeah. Well, and I, and I will say that often, and I'll speak to myself as a leader, like I, you know, I was coming from this kind of donor comes first mentality because I kind of had this deep belief that there weren't enough donors out there for me. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of had to accept treatment. And I think what I see coming up with this younger generation of folks in the sector is that they're much more willing to say things, they're much more willing to, you know, voice concerns. They're they're not willing to put up with the stuff that that we put up with. And, you know, I think I'm I'm a I'm a Gen Xer. I'm on the lower runs of the Gen X, but I think we had this idea of like, oh well we, we just have to put up with it. Like boys will be boys. And like, that's just how it is. And we just need to put up with it. And so I really credit this younger generation, particularly yeah. the young women be like, no, I'm not going to put up with that. And it's like, yeah, you know what? You're right. Like we shouldn't have had to put up with that either, but we did because we just thought like, that's, you go along to get along. Right. Yeah. That's actually super interesting that you brought that up. I came across something in my news the other day that I was really happy to see. And it was a friend of mine who was an elementary school teacher and they had watched a movie I'm assuming that maybe caused kids in the in the room to cry or maybe something about emotions or something like that. And the teacher asked her students and she's just like writing this, this story on her news post. She said, um, raise your hand if you've heard the term boys don't cry. Mm. And no one in the room raised their hand. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. I hope that we are raising the next generation of more emotionally healthy just, and yeah, accessible just- totally different generational changes that, um, like, I can't wait to see like how that, I can't wait to see how this plays out as they grow older, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. makes me excited. Um, a couple other questions. Um, we kind of already covered that you were in fact kind of like this but not an accident, a dental fundraiser. Like you obviously took. Oh, out. I was a total accidental fundraiser. Okay. No, make no mistake. Like I was. Like, first of all, like looking back, I'm like, why did you hire a 26 year old baby? Like I had no business <laughs> being hired. But I'm really grateful for the opportunity, and I'm glad someone took a chance on me. But I look back on myself as a 26 year old and be like, I didn't know anything. Like what is even happening? Um, but so yes, I was an accidental fundraiser for sure. So what were the types of formal training that you got? Because it sounds like at some point you did have to pursue some type of professional development. Um, and what the, what does that look like for you? Yeah. So a couple of different things. I mean, I'm, I am a big learner. Um, you know, I took the fundraising, cl- the grant writing classes at the foundation center. I went through the Columbia program at the business school. Um, the one training that I really want to credit and I, 
say it all the time, is Jennifer McRae at Harvard, uh, her exponential fundraising class, and just opened up this whole perspective that I think really shifted my whole orientation to fundraising. You know, I did an MIT program. So like I did all the fancy programs, right? The thing that I felt was lacking for me was number one, an approach that was theoretical and also pragmatic. And so in my training, I really try to make it actionable, right? Because I can talk theory all day long, but like people want to know, okay, but what do I say in that meeting? Or how do I talk about this with my board? Or, you know, how do I, what are the words that I use to solicit a gift? And I think so often, number one, I think it's it's highly personal. So I can't necessarily, like what works for me may not work for you, Delaney, but there are some, you know, frameworks that I can bring in or past experiences that I've had that can be instructive, right? Again, to the point of like, don't make my mistakes, make new and different mistakes. I think that the world of major gift fundraising is really, I think it's hard because it's so individual, right? Every single person out there who is a potential donor will have a different perspective about the work and you know, why they give money and so on and so forth. It's also the area where people feel the most uncomfortable because you're talking to people about their personal assets. Um, it's also the place where the most stuff about money comes up, right? So whether you were brought up with a lot of money or not brought up with a lot of money, like all of us hold lots of stories and assumptions and meanings about money and what having it or doesn't or not having it means about a person. And, and so until you really unpack all of that stuff, you bring it all to the table. So that's the number one key thing I work on with my clients is like, let's unpack the stories about money that you have and whether or not they're, it's serving you, right? Like I'm not saying it's wrong or it's right, but you can make a decision about like, is this story that I'm telling myself about money serving me and getting me the results that I want? What are some, I'm curious, what are some of the stories that, that, you've heard about people's relationships with money? Oh gosh, where do I begin? So I, I start with like the money myth, like money's hard to come by, money doesn't grow on trees. Um, people with money are different. Money is the root of all evil. Uh, mm. Suffering is noble. This is a big one in the nonprofit. Like if I ED like 400 hours a, a week, somehow I'm like gonna win the ED Olympics. We don't get a medal for suffering. Yeah. Um, or like the, the, um, the leaders who have to say in every conversation that they're not paid. I'm like, so yeah, promoting that. Like I want yeah. you to be paid. <laughs> yeah. Like it's a badge of courage of like, this isn't going overhead. I'm not getting paid. You're like, okay. Yeah. Like you're, you're setting a terrible example. Anyway, yeah. all of these things are stories that I've heard, or, you know, I think in the nonprofit world, we have a real, we come from a scarcity mindset. I mean, even the word nonprofit comes from a, a lack perspective, yeah. but it's yeah. like the automatic, like, we can't afford that. Or, you know, we can't raise money because like, that's one of my favorites. Like we can't raise money because of the war in Ukraine, because of the recession, because of this, because of the pandemic, because it's Thursday, right? We can come up with every kind of reason to not fundraise. Yeah. I I watched a panel yesterday and one of the, um, one of the executive directors on the panel said, I can't say nonprofit sector. I say community and service sector. I love that. Community and service sector. Yeah. Or like social sector. I love that. Um, so anyway, like 99.9% of the time, the stories that we have about money 
are rooted in our own upbringing, right? So we just accept as true these things that we've learned from our families about money. And we don't question any of this, right? Until people like me are challenge you to be like, what's that story? Why do you have that story? And is that a story you want to have, right? Like if you examine all of the stuff and you're like, no, this is a story that I still want to carry around with me. It's like, okay, fine, good. Do, do what you got to do, but at least know what you're carrying in that bag. Hi, this is Kevin Burgess, the editor of the Nonprofit Hub Radio podcast, and I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, DonorBox. DonorBox has a simple mission to do everything possible to support nonprofit organizations in their efforts to make a difference. From hitting your first campaign goal to growing into a sustainable and thriving nonprofit, DonorBox makes it easy for organizations to maximize donations and attract more supporters. From charities to social impact groups to faith-based organizations, DonorBox delivers a simple, seamless donation experience for your supporters. So visit DonorBox.org to sign up with no setup or monthly fees and no contract required. That's DonorBox.org. Now let's get back to today's episode. So we talked a little bit about what maybe you you enjoyed, um, like perhaps the class at Harvard was one of your favorite things in terms of your professional development. Um, is there something that was that you pursued as professional development that not was detrimental, but that like you least enjoyed, or maybe something that you could that you could speak to those listening today that you would recommend maybe not listening to or having some reservation about being taught? Well, that's an interesting question. I think that particularly when it comes to fundraising, there's a lot of really bad advice out there, mm-hmm. right? And I think part of it comes from this transactional mindset of like, oh, I just need to like target people and then like extract resources from them. So I don't want to call out anyone in particular, even though I have opinions, but I think that when you are out there learning about the work, um, feel what, like be discerning about what feels good and right for you. Right. Because the way I raise money is going to be different than the way you totally raise money or the way that any of your listeners will raise money. And I will say, be really aware of when you're out there learning about how to raise money. There's a difference between things that you feel are not going to work for you because it's not values line and things that make you uncomfortable. Because a lot of fundraising can be very uncomfortable because, you know, money can be uncomfortable. Like, you know, in the, our society, we say, don't talk about money, sex, or politics, right? It's just like a topic that we shy away from. So I would really challenge people to, to think about, is this method that I'm being taught, or is this theory that I'm being taught, or is this idea that I'm being presented with making me uncomfortable because it's not aligning with who I am, or is it just that it's challenging my beliefs in a way that's making me uncomfortable? And those are two different things. Yeah, I actually had, I volunteered at a fundraising event this past Saturday. It was a masquerade ball and it was super fun. And I've been volunteering at this organization for years and years, and I always do registration. And one of the things that we do at registration is ask every guest for their credit card information to input it into their virtual account. We use BidPal through OneCause for auctions. 
And one of our jobs is just to request their credit card information. Like, can I add your credit card information into your account for you? Mm-hmm. And I can tell even that like the first time I asked it, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I just asked another credit card. And I was like, should I explain more? Like blah, blah, blah. But like, I'm really just providing them like a service, right? Like I'm trying to make the experience easier for them. Like they already know there's an option. Like I'm not, it's not like I'm doing anything crazy, but like my gut response was like, a little bit like, oh, like nervous. And then after the first one, I was like, I'm fine. Like, it's good. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, look, the first time that we do anything, we're nervous about it, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, I mean, at this point, I've done hundreds of asks. I still get a little nervous before yeah. I ask. Like it, this yeah. is like a normal human reaction, but do, does that mean it's bad and wrong? No, no. it just means it's like I'm a little uncomfortable. Yeah. But the one thing I do say is like, it's only weird if you make it weird, right? Like, yeah. If you've done your work with the donor, you've build trust, you've asked permission to ask. They know why you're there. You know why you're there. Like, let's just do the thing, right? Yeah. Um, and sometimes I think our discomfort with money means that we like dance around it and we don't actually like make the ask and like we we touch it in a bunch of stuff and then we're not really clear about the thing that we asked for or like, did we really ask? Yes. I think the nerve to like sum it up, I don't think telling a fundraiser that like the day you're never nervous about asking for money is like the day that you're an expert, you know, like <laughs> I think having like the nerves just means that it's important, right? Like this means something you want it to go well, um, Mm -hmm. type of a thing, like just like performers. Like if you ask like the world's best performer, someone who's been been on stage thousands of times, they still get nervous before they walk on stage. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think we need to reframe too for people that the win is not the outcome. The win is the ask because ultimately like you have no life whether or not, someone says yes, right? Like we equate, like if I raise a lot of money, I'm a good fundraiser. If I don't raise money, I'm a bad fundraiser, right? And ultimately like you are not controlling the minds of people. Like they can say yes or they can say no. And it it isn't up to you necessarily. Now, what is up to you is like, did you build a relationship? Did you have a foundation of trust? Were you transparent with with your donor? Did you align their interest with the work of the organization. If all these things are true, then like the fact that you got the ask out is the win. Yeah. I really like that. I love that. You kind of maybe touched on the definition of this, but in one of your blog articles this year, um, I, I took a peek at it and you said, um, the title of the blog article is it's not about you. And you wrote, be a guy, not a minor. Um, mm. Can we just reiterate maybe what that means? Yeah, 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 yeah. So to go back to this idea of scarcity, so our brains are ever in one of two states. We're either in survival mode or executive mode. And in survival mode, we get very transactional, right? We see people as walking ATMs. And that's when we get into the space of like, how do I extract things? How do I get them to give me that money? How do I convince them to give me that money, right? Instead, what could it look like if we saw ourselves as kind of philanthropic advisors, right? Like Mm -hmm. we know that somebody has resources. They know that they want to see some kind of change in the world. We know that we as an organization have resources. So how can I be the person to like matchmate essentially and combine resources so that we get to something bigger than either of us could have done alone? And so what I really want to stress to everybody is that everybody has their own reasons for giving. Mm -hmm. Everyone is the hero of their own story in their lives, right? This is a classic hero's journey. I'm going to credit Greg Warner and Dr. Russell James for this, is 
when we are on our hero's journey, like the classic hero's journey is like, you know, the Harry Potter or the Luke Skywalker, like we're living our normal life. We get a call to adventure. We first refuse the call. Then we go on this call to adventure. You know, adventure ensues. And then at the end of the adventure, I, I experience some kind of victory. And then I get to return to my normal world with an enhanced identity, right? Along the way, I experience a mentor or a guide. Like in the case of Luke Skywalker, it was, it was Yoda, right? Someone who can help you along the way. We need to be the Yoda for our donors. And I think the mistake a lot of nonprofits make is that they talk about themselves as the hero of like, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're so great, da 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 It doesn't leave room for people to enter the story. And ultimately, like everyone wants to feel special. Like Danny Meyer, I quote Danny Meyer all the time, this restaurateur in New York. Imagine everyone is walking around with an invisible sign around their neck that says, make me feel special. Mm. And so if we are a guide to the hero journey, for our donors, for our beneficiaries, for our board members, like we're just the vessel through which the resources flow. We are not the star of the show. Yeah. I, there's so many things that you've said that I just love. Um, I, I, I'm someone that kind of, because I'm an introvert, sometimes when I walk into a room and I've heard a lot of people say this, like people who are you think that they might be an extrovert because of um, the way that they network and the way that they approach people and make people feel really good. When I see people that might seem uncomfortable or, or like not maybe right in their element, that is who I go to like in a room mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I want them to feel good. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. It, that gives me like an opportunity to kind of like shine my light, but like know that it's making like a bigger impact than if I like walk up to the person who's like made their way like around the room already. Do you know what I mean? So but yeah, I love, I love that. Like seeing, um, make me feel special. Yeah. Some of the people who maybe don't seem like they're asking for that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, and what's interesting too, Nalini, is I think there's this misconception that the extroverts are the better fundraisers. It, I would actually say it's probably the introverts yeah. that are the better yeah. fundraisers because, you know, ultimately when you're in conversation with people, like, you want to ask good questions. It's 75% them talking, 25% you talking. And uh, extroverts are usually so focused. I'll speak for myself. Like I'm, I'm an extrovert. Like I just like want to jump into the story and like, I'm like, and that's not what people respond to. People respond to like the human connection and the ability to like tell people who I am through stories, through anecdotes, through like funny observations. Um, and you know, the older I get, the more I feel comfortable leaning into the more introverted side. Like, I don't need to prove myself. I don't need to walk into the room and be like, you know, miscongeniality. Like, I, I actually start to really value the one-on-one conversations and the deep connections. Yeah, the more intimate conversations. And yeah, introverts can be really awesome listeners. We actually have a blog on Nonprofit Hub about the value that introverts bring to the nonprofit sector. Um, oh, good. Anyone listening here is an introvert. Well, we always try to include a segment at the end of every episode called Good News for Nonprofits. What is some good news that you can share with everyone listening today? The good news is that I think a couple of things. I think that uh, we have seen unprecedented levels of generosity and philanthropy. And I think that with proper stewardship, we will continue to see growth in that area. We've seen tremendous like personal wealth growth, like even in the face of 
recession and inflation, blah, blah, blah. Like there's still a lot of money out there, right? And we've seen unprecedented growth in the areas of DAFs and, and family foundations. So like the money is there. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's a question of like, how do you identify it and, and steward and cultivate it properly? I think that's a first thing. And then the second thing is, I think I've seen a lot of reasons to be hopeful about the kinds of conversations that are happening in the philanthropic sector with respect to funding uh, Black-led organizations, with respect to trust-based philanthropy, with respect to not requiring onerous uh, reporting guidelines. And I hope that's a trend that continues. And then the third one I will say is I see wealth in the hands of people of color, right? So I think traditionally philanthropy was, you know, yeah, like stereotypically like an old white guy behind a big desk. And I think we're seeing that change. And so I think the really smart nonprofits will not only be aware, but have a strategy to attract donors of color. Yeah, I love that. Ria, you're so full of insights. And I re- I really want to like pull out so many quotes that you said today and like make them into like graphics for nonprofithub.org. But Um, I'd love to keep talking. I feel like we could talk forever about all of this stuff. And I have to say, this is something that, um, I say out loud every time I see it and like, no one seems to like find humor in it and maybe you will. Um, and maybe, maybe it's not funny. Maybe that's why no one laughs, but, um, I mean, West Michigan is not very diverse. Like that's where I I was born and raised and that's where I live now. And it's, it's not known historically to be a very diverse town. Um, but we're definitely, like you said, starting to focus on these issues in the nonprofit space and, and every nonprofit, large nonprofit names in the area, um, there's always like in the building, there's always like the wall of white men, mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. the yeah. previous leaders, the biggest donors, like whatever the wall. I'm like, oh, there's like the wall of white men. Like how could, how could uh-huh. but anyways, I just thought I mentioned that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look. I think that look the the wall of white men is is historically uh, what hit the drivers behind philanthropy, but I, and, and I think that is changing. And I think, you know, I think leaders need to be really thoughtful about the messages that they're sending, whether or not they are aware that they're sending them. Right. So if we have a wall of white men and there's like a bunch of names and it's a place of prominence, like what does that communicate? It's so interesting. I think about this a lot. I, uh, went into, like, if you go into any high school, right away, you'll see what's important about mm. to that school, right? So if you are you see a bunch of like athletic trophies and whatever. All I remember about walking into schools is like yeah. a sports wall. Yeah. Then you know that like, okay, this is a school that thinks that sports are really important. You walk into another school, maybe they're like academic trophies and like math lead trophy. Okay. Well then you know that like the school prize is academic, right? So I would say for leaders, like, take a step back and maybe invite people who are new to the community to give you a fresh eye. And like, what does this communicate to you about what we think is important? Yeah. That's a great question to ask. I love that concept. Um, yeah. So very true. Um, and even something to consider, I've heard this a lot too, just like, what does the first thing, what are, what's the first thing that people are seeing on your website as well? Um, oh, don't even get me started on the website. But <laughs> yes. So actually I have a session coming up tomorrow with my group. Uh, we're going to do website reviews. And so on average, people spend actually less than two seconds, but let's be generous and say eight seconds on your website. What you think you're communicating on your website is probably not what you're communicating. And so I think it's always worth 
getting someone who's very new to the yeah. organization who doesn't know you and honestly like has no vested interest in because you know you ask a friend your friend is going to want to be nice like oh well i think that the, it says that like you want you know a totally fresh eye on this like okay i'm gonna tell you in eight seconds what do we do why is it important and what's in it for you yeah and if you can't tell me that in eight seconds like our website needs to be revamped yeah yeah absolutely i love i will have like three people look at something i do especially if it's a creative project or a design project or you name it um is it doing what it's it's intended to do um that's right important well ria it's been a pleasure it's been so nice speaking with you thank you for joining us thank you delaney it's always a pleasure all right we'll talk to you guys next week bye Thanks for joining us for this Nonprofit Hub Radio podcast episode. For more resources on fundraising, marketing, and all things nonprofit, be sure to check out the number one nonprofit toolbox at nonprofithub.org. We hope you'll join us next week for another episode of the Nonprofit Hub Radio podcast. 